Good morning, Woodland Hills. And pod parishioners and all the rest of you, happy uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Although I'm told that you're not allowed to say Super Bowl anything unless you have the trademark, so we're supposed to call it Super Game Sunday or something like that. What is with that? Lighten up, Pepsi-Cola, share a little bit, gal. Well, hey, uh, I would really encourage you for folks to pray about, think about, uh, consider being about uh, this um, homeless shelter thing that we have here. It's a tremendous opportunity we have to serve people, and that's what the kingdom's all about, right? Uh, so here's these families that have got no place to stay. We, for a month, turned the church into an a overflow homeless shelter. And um, it's a chance just to serve people. And it, it, those of you who have done this before will, I'm sure, agree with this, that whatever blessing you are to the folks that are there, uh, you're going to get blessed a hundred times more. It, it's, it's, just, it's what the kingdom is all about. And when you lose your life, you find it. And this is just a way of giving away a part of your time to, to serve people, just to hang out with them, just to talk with folks. Doesn't require any kind of training or anything uh, other than what we provide. So consider being a part of that. It, it, but it's important, and since we are opening our place up, that we have enough folks to be there to facilitate this. And we've always have uh, more than enough. So I'm confident we will. But uh, I don't want to become so confident that I don't stop encouraging you to do that. Um, it's important. So when we are not in a series, and by the way, we're going to be having here in a couple of weeks starting a series on the Book of Revelation because we've had so many questions about it. So that'll be interesting. But uh, um, when we're not doing that, and I'm in the pulpit, we, we talk about a book of the Bible, and right now we're in the Colossians. And we're up to chapter 3, uh, and we're entitling this message, Household Rules. And the reason is because um, this passage of Scripture we're in falls under this genre that was present in the ancient world that was called household rules. You find in all the ethical writings in the Greco-Roman world and elsewhere, uh, they'd always have a section, when they're talking about ethics, that would cover the household. And usually it was just rules of decency on how husbands and wives should relate, how parents and children should relate, and how uh, masters and slaves should relate. Since households that were middle income and above usually had slaves, and the father was the master of those slaves. And so there's rule, the rules that pertain to those sorts of things. And we find several of these same lists in the New Testament. And here we're, 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 we're dealing with one this morning. What's interesting is we find that in the New Testament, the, the particular rules of decency that they give to husbands and wives and masters and slaves and children don't differ that much from the surrounding culture in terms of what the folks actually do. Uh, what's unique is that the New Testament brings a unique motivation to folks to do what they do. Instead of just doing it out of decency or because it's a cultural expectation, we'll see here that Paul um, gives the motivation for all that we do and all that we submit to, to be to please the Lord. There's a kingdom motivation that is infused into the cultural understanding of what's the proper way for people within a household to relate. Uh, we dealt with the first of these last week, and I'll just read it again just by way of review. We're starting with uh, verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3. And here we saw last week, Paul says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And the question we asked last week, and we're continuing it this week, is this. Is this teaching a part of the Bible's timeless teaching for kingdom people, the way God wants it to be until the end of time? Or is this part of the cultural adaptation of the Bible, the cultural packaging of the Bible? And I suggested last week that it's the second. It's part of the cultural adaptation of the Bible. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that message. But what uh, I uh, tried to show last week was that 
the, we find in Genesis 3, after the fall, as part of the curse that humans invited in on this world as a result of their rebellion, as a result of that, the Lord says, among other things, that the wife will be desiring the husband. And that word desire has the connotation of manipulation or control. And the husband, usually by virtue of his superior strength, will end up lording over the wife. The word there has a connotation of to tyrannize. And this isn't a prescription of how God wants marriages to be. It's a description of how, unfortunately, marriage are, marriages are going to tend to be because of the fall. And we saw that in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a lot of indication that God's ideal was for the husband and wife to be absolutely equal in every respect and to be a complementary team that carry out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And they do that together. And they together reflect something of the, the love of God, the unity of God, which implies absolute equality. And so what God is saying here in Genesis 3, in this declaration of this curse that's coming on the world, is that this beautiful, one-flesh, God-honoring, mutually equal relationship that he had in mind for the husband and wife is now going to be reduced to a power struggle. And that, unfortunately, is the way marriages have tended to be throughout history. Uh, the wife trying to control the husband, the husband tries to control the wife. In fact, this characterizes the whole world in the light of the fall. It's one big power struggle. People trying to get the advantage over others, impose their morally or intellectually superior wills on others. Everyone wants to be king, right? And so there's this constant struggle. That's why there's so much violence in the world. If not in, in physical violence, it's hostility in our minds and our attitudes and our words. That's all one big power struggle. And none of that is the will of God. What we saw was that uh, for kingdom people, we're to be moving in the opposite direction. In all of our relationships, Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you in all of your relationships, and that would include marriage. Let this mindset be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was equal with God, the Son of God, had all these divine prerogatives, all these advantages, he set them all aside in order to humble himself, become a human being, one of us, and then become obedient to the point of death for our, for our benefit, for our salvation. He put our interests above his own and, and was willing to sacrifice for that. That is the mindset that we are to carry into all of our relationships. Our spousal relationships, our neighbor relationships, even our enemy relationships. Rather than trying to come over people like this, we're to be coming under people. We're to be the foot washers of the world. We're to be the humble folks who confess that we are the greatest of sinners. We're not in a position to judge anybody else. We're to be the people who manifest God's character, his humble servant character as revealed on the cross, and uh, to becoming under people, supporting people, uh, helping people, rather than trying to lord over people. Um, and so in, in, in marriages, it should be that same way. Instead of trying to, uh, the husband and wife trying to get o- over one another, we should be coming under one another. And Paul says this explicitly in Ephesians 5, where he begins to push back on the, on the cultural uh, situation of the first century, where the man has all the power, the man is the master, the wife is the servant. Uh, he pushes back on that, and he says, Husbands and wives, submit yourselves to one another. Becoming under, submit, come under one another, defer to one another, support one another. And then, he, because of the power structure you have in the first century, he applies the Christ-church analogy to marriages when he says, Husbands, you're like in the position of Christ. You have all the power. So, you be the first to submit. You, you do what Christ did to the church. While she was yet a sinner and, and, and unclean, Christ gave his life. So, you initiate this whether your wife deserves it or not. And then, wife, you respond the way the church did. You, 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 you love your husband uh, as, as, as uh, the church loves Christ. And so now we have this coming under. Husband submits, and the wife submits, and there's this deferring to one another. 
And that is the kingdom. Because that looks like Jesus. This power over thing doesn't look anything like Jesus. And so that, I submit, is, is, is uh, the, the Bible. God is a missionary to a foreign world. And like any good missionary, the missionaries, you start where the people are at, not where you wish they were, where they're at. You love them where they're at. You enter into, enter into solidarity with where they're at. And uh, you love them in the, in, in the direction of the ideal that uh, God is calling them to. And so with that in mind, let's, let, we're going to read the rest of these, these uh, uh, household rules and apply them to our situation today. We'll see that they have a lot to teach us. It also provides us with a good, uh, good opportunity to uh, kind of give an example of how to read the Bible. Um, and you'll see here that there's an important grid that we need to have in terms of deciding what applies to us and what doesn't apply to us. Let me start with prayer, and then I'll read the Scripture. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium, and every person listening through podcasts. God, I bless them. I bless our parishioners and everyone else who's tuning in this message. And I pray, God, that you use this to form Christ's character in us uh, and to instruct us, uh, teach us how to read the Bible and, and teach us how to be good husbands and wives and how to be good employees and employers and how to be good children in relationship to our parents. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Here's what Paul says. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, hmm. obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Notice that new motivation. Children, you do it... Uh, because it pleases God. Slaves, you do it uh, as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, work, it with, work at it with all your heart, as if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Whatever your earthly master does, you know you, you get a reward in heaven for, for uh, d- doing this with a kingdom motivation, as unto the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, and anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs. Leave all vengeance to God. And there is no favoritism. Masters, you provide your, your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Hmm. What do you think? This raises some of the same questions that we dealt with last week. Is the Bible here condoning slavery? Is it condoning there being masters who have slaves and the slaves obey them and everything as, as unto the Lord. Now, up until 150 years ago, there's many folks, half the population in America said yes. And we had in the whole Christian South, the institution of slavery. In fact, um, slave owners would, would use these passages like this to argue for the right for masters to own slaves. How can you be against it? It's right there in the Bible. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. In fact, one of the reasons they had, not always, some were very, very sincere, but one of the reasons why they wanted to convert the slaves to Christianity and teach them the Bible is because it was their billy club to keep them in submission. You get them to believe that, that this is the Word of God, and, and here it says, you obey your masters, I'm your master, so you serve me the way you would serve the Lord. And everything. In fact, what's interesting is that the same arguments that were used to defend slavery 150 years ago are the ones that are used now to continue to argue that the wife alone is supposed to submit to the husband. The husband is supposed to be the master of the household. Same arguments. And that's not surprising because in the Bible, 
And in first century culture in general, in fact, in most cultures, the, the wife was in the same, basically the same category as the slave. Wives had no rights. Wives were bought and sold. You know, they're in the same kind of category. The only ones who had any rights were the men. And the men who were the citizens of a particular uh, country. And, and so it's, uh, what's interesting is that in, in most recognized, in fact, everyone recognizes that the slavery is no longer, that was a cultural adaptation, but a lot of folks haven't got around applying that to the wife yet. Hopefully that'll be coming in the century ahead of us. It's still in process. But here's the thing. Whether you agree or not uh, with the idea that this is all part of cultural adaptation, the slavery is part of cultural adaptation, and or the wife is uh, submission is part of the cultural adaptation, the question is, why is this in the Word of God? You believe the Bible is God-inspired, and yet it certainly appears on the surface to condone slavery. And I suggested last week that the answer to that and to every other question that we'd ask is found in the cross. The cross is the key that unlocks everything. I firmly believe that. The cross is the fullest, clearest uh, revelation of God's character and will. You want to know what God's like? You keep your eyes on the cross. And I'm not going to go through all the arguments for that. I've done that in the past. But as the definitive revelation of God, we should always be looking to it to understand the Bible, understand God, understand uh, us and our relationship to other people. It's all found there in the cross. Really, it all is right there. And what we find, among other things, on the cross is that God's not a God who says, here's my ideal, you either meet it or go to hell. Rather, he's a God who says, here's my ideal. Oh, you didn't meet it. We'll all come down to your level. And he enters into solidarity with us. He bears our sin, takes it upon himself, thereby takes on an appearance that reflects that sin. And he does it to then, in solidarity with us, love us and move us in the direction of his ideal. He participates in our fallenness to move us towards that ideal. And since that is the God, the same God that inspired the Bible, we should anticipate that that's what he's doing throughout the Bible. In fact, we find that all over the place. God says, here's my ideal. The people of God fail to meet it. So God enters into solidarity with them, takes on an appearance that reflects their, their sin, uh, but he meets them where they're at in order to gradually move them, like a wise missionary would, move them in the direction of, of God's ideal. And that's why we find in the Bible some very barbaric laws. And we've got to be okay saying they're barbaric. You kill the rebellious kid. Uh, the wife going through, or the woman going through a monthly time's got to advertise it so that no one touches her and becomes unclean. Uh, you know, kill everyone that's involved in fornication. Kill uh, the gay folks. Kill the adulterers. You know, there's a lot of capital punishment there. Does that reflect God's true character? Well, I don't believe so. Not for a second, because it doesn't reflect the kind of mindset that Jesus had. Jesus, he, he hung out with and loved the prostitutes and the tax collectors and, and, and all the rest. He didn't say, show them no mercy, let's slaughter them all. I can't imagine him saying something like that. But see, this reflects not God's ideal will and, and, and character, but rather it, it reflects the best that God could shoot for given where the people were at. And if you compare these laws with the laws, they're barbaric to us, but they weren't to the people of the time. You compare those laws with the surrounding culture, and they make improvements. God's gradually moving people towards the ideal. Uh, but it doesn't reflect his true character and will. And so when we read the Bible, we've got to know this. That just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that's something that's supposed to be applied to us. I hope none of you apply to your lives. Kill your kids when they're rebellious. <laughs> Otherwise, we have a lot of dead kids around here. Um, no, it, it's, uh, it doesn't reflect God's will for us. It, it's a historical record reflecting uh, what, how God condescended for people at the time. How he was willing to stoop to meet people where they're at. And so what, what's re- revealing to us, as we come upon barbaric laws or, or uh, horrendously violent portraits of God in the Bible, we've got to know that we're dealing with the God who revealed himself on Calvary. 
And we need to treat the ugliness of those portraits of God and those laws the way we treat the ugliness on Calvary. The surface appearance of the cross is ugly because it reflects our sin. Jesus looks like a God-forsaken, crucified criminal. He reflects our sin. That's not what reveals God to us. What reveals God to us on the cross is that we know that it was God who stepped into that. And that reveals that the depth to which He was willing to go for us reveals the, the perfection of His love. And so the cross is a revelation because we look through the ugliness and see the beauty of a condescending God who's willing to take on that ugliness. And since that reveals what God's really truly like, it reveals what God's always been like. And so when we come upon ugly stuff in the Bible, we've got to know that the revelation isn't on the surface. It's on what we see going on behind the surface. That God is stooping to meet people, meet people where He's at, bearing their sin, taking on an appearance that reflects that sin in order to move them closer to His ideal. Read the Bible through the lens of the cross, and it just brings a clarity to everything. And you don't have to, have to end up trying then to apologize for some of the barbaric stuff you find there, as so many people do, as if you know, trying to tidy up things, like, like it's not gross that some of those laws are there. We can say that they're gross, but that doesn't mean it's not the Word of God, because the cross is gross, and it's the quintessential Word of God. See what I'm saying? Uh, it's, you have to have eyes of faith that look through the surface and see the God uh, our Creator condescending, stooping to meet people where they're at, loving people where they're at, to move them forward. And so with that mindset, let's then turn to the rest of these passages in the book of Colossians. Colossians 3, we'll start with verse 20. I'll go through this verse by verse. See how it... And we'll be asking the question, is this, is this timeless teaching or is this cultural adaptation? And if it's cultural adaptation, how does it apply to us? In fact, if it's, if it's timeless teaching, how does it apply to us? So first, Paul says... Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Uh, that's not particularly controversial, I don't think. I don't think anyone would want to argue that it's God's will for children not to obey their parents. And you find this repeated in Jesus and throughout the New Testament. You find it in, in virtually all cultures. Everyone realizes, has always realized, that kids need to be raised. That's basically what it amounts to. And to be raised, they need to have rules that they obey. Uh, some of us know from common sense, others from experience, that kids who don't have adequate restrictions grow up to be they turn into little monsters who turn into big monsters. Kids need restrictions. It's, at least in this fallen world, they need some discipline. They need to obey their parents. So there's nothing controversial about that. And we find this in all the writings of the time uh, when the household rules is, first, obey children, obey your parents. What's new, and it's beautifully new, is the motivation that Paul gives for doing this. Because no one else says this. He says, do it to please the Lord. You don't do it because your parents deserve it. You don't do it because they got, have any intrinsic authority over you. Uh, you don't do it because the culture expects you to. Your motivation should be to do it to please the Lord. The Lord tells you to do it, and so you do it to please Him. Uh, and this has significant implications for us parents, because it means we need to be teaching our children in age-appropriate ways that your authority over them isn't your authority over them. We need to be teaching them in age-appropriate ways that they, in the end, have only one master, and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. So important. Because otherwise, kids, they grow up, they're going to start attaching themselves to this or that authority, and it may not be of God at all. We have, you're only allowed to have one master, and that is Jesus Christ. And so the reasons why children ought to obey their, their, their parents isn't because the parents have authority alongside of Christ. It's rather because the parents have authority in light of Christ. Christ gives them that authority. And so the motivation for submitting to that authority isn't because of the intrinsic authority of the parents, but because you're submitted to Christ and Christ tells you to, to submit to your parents. So important that from the earliest age, we're teaching our kids that no one has any authority over you 
other than Jesus Christ. Now, he tells us to submit to different things, and so we submit. But not for the things themselves, but simply in reverence to Christ. So the only motivation we ought to have as kingdom people as to why we submit to anything is to serve our Lord. He tells us to. I submit to government, mostly. Uh, speed here and there, you know, don't get all legalistic on me. If some of you do the same. Uh, in fact, I bet all of you do. Hypocrites judging me. How dare you? <laughs> I, I, I submit. But you know what? I submit not because I think that the government has any authority on me. I'm a kingdom person. I'm a foreigner in this land. I, I really don't belong here. I'm an ambassador from a different kingdom. My president is Jesus Christ. And, and, and he's the one I serve. And he's the only one I serve. He's the only authority over me. No one's got any authority over me other than him. Now, he tells me to submit to government. So I will. Insofar as, unless they tell, the government tries to make me do something that's contrary to my calling in Christ, then I've got to disobey. There's room for civil disobedience. Sometimes you have to. And you may pay for it. You're called to do that. But insofar as it's possible, we read this in Romans 13 and elsewhere, we submit to the government. But it's, it's not because it has any intrinsic authority over us. The government, all governments are part of this fallen world that's passing away. All governments are part of that power over structure that has passed away with uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so if you're in Christ, in principle, those things should have no significance to you. But we're in the world, though we're not of the world, and so we've got to live according to it. And so the Lord says, hey, submit to it insofar as it's possible. And I think the basic reason is this. Don't waste your time and all sorts of squabbles over that. You've got kingdom work to do. You're a kingdom ambassador. So go along with the program as best as you can so that you can keep your eye on the prize, on the bullseye, which is doing kingdom activity. Uh, but it's not because government has any intrinsic authority. So we need to be teaching our kids from a very, very early age uh, that they have one master. And, and your job as a parent is to be raising them in a way that models their Lord to them and then eventually turns them over to the Lord so they have their own relationship and now they're not, it's not being mediated through you any longer. But at an early age, it is mediated through you. So start, you start that weaning process, turning them over to the Lord directly from a very, very early age. They've got one master, one authority, and that's Jesus Christ. And then Paul talks to the fathers. He says, fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll get discouraged. Don't embitter your children. Now, notice here that in the verse before this, he said, obey your parents, plural. And now he talks just to the father. Fathers, don't embitter your children. Are mothers allowed to embitter their children? <laughs> mothers, you go ahead. It's okay for you to do it. That's, fine. That's not the intent of the verse. He's talking to the father because in the ancient world, Greco-Roman world, ancient Jewish world, and most cultures throughout history, the father has all the authority, has all the power, has all the say-so, so the father does all the disciplining. And so it only makes sense for Paul, in a first century context, to talk to the father. This is a, a, a classic example of God, the heavenly missionary, the God of the cross, accommodating the fallen structure of society. It was never supposed to be this way, but in light of the fall, uh, men have tended to, to rule the world. And so the, the heavenly missionary comes down and works within that context. But we saw last week that God's ideal wasn't to have the man, uh, by virtue of his gender, being the master of the whole thing. Or rather, God wanted this, this, this absolutely equal, complementary, uh, teamwork, God-glorifying, one-flesh relationship uh, to be carrying out things together as a team, raising children, uh, lording over the, the earth and the animal kingdom. All that is to be done uh, as a team sort of a thing. And so it ought to be the case in God's ideal that if there's any discipline to be done, the mothers and the fathers do that. It's a, it's a team thing. And since we are in a culture now that is much less patriarchal uh, than, than the first century was, 
and a culture in which it's generally understood that mothers can and should discipline their children along with the father, we should apply what Paul says to fathers to both parents. See, this is part of the cultural adaptation that we need to do when we, when we read the Bible. Uh, that was a cultural limitation of the time, but it no longer is. And so I would say to both parents, mothers and fathers, don't discipline your children in ways that embitter them. Now, that word embitter, erthizo, uh, it means to exasperate, uh, to, to just kind of discipline in a way that leads them to fr- frustration, discouragement, maybe even despair, where they, they, they're prone to give up. They have seething anger towards you, and they want to quit. And it's easy for parents to discipline their children in ways that actually create embitterment. And there's a lot of ways that we can do that. I think the, the primary way, especially among Christians is that we set standards for our kids that are not realistic. We set standards for our kids that are unattainable. And when kids get to the point where they despair of, of ever pleasing you by meeting those ideals, I can tell you from my own experience that it won't be long before they try to feel worthwhile by breaking those rules. You see, everyone is created with a need for worth. We know this. We need to feel significant, worthwhile. And, as, and we know that ultimately we should get all of that from Jesus Christ. But children need to get that from Christ through you. You're going to be the primary worth giver. Their, their identity is yet being formed. They need to feel worth. But if they ever get to the point where they conclude they can't feel worthwhile by meeting your expectations because they're too high or they're applied too rigidly, well, it, w- it could very easily happen that they'll decide to feel worthwhile by breaking your expectations. Because there's others who will, who will, uh, will applaud that. And, and they'll get life from their peers. It's very easy for parents to demand too much. Uh, we have to set standards that are realistic. And that are, that are attainable. Uh, and we have to make sure, here, here's, the, here's a crucial thing, that, that it's not about you. The standards aren't about you. This happens so easily where we feel like we're doing a bad job as parents if our kids don't meet a certain standard. But maybe that those kids aren't capable of that standard. Uh, but you feel like you look bad as a parent unless you force that on them. I encourage you to not ever make it about you. Make it about your kids. Look, if God Almighty was willing to take on an appearance that's uglier than he really is to be in solidarity with us, we must be willing to appear uglier than we really are or worse as parents than we really are to be in solidarity with our kids. Amen? And, and so have standards that are realistic. And um, it's not like a one-size-fits-all. You know, what's right for Johnny may not be right for Susie. Johnny maybe can get straight A's, no problem. Susie may be hitting out of the park if she gets C's. It's when we apply this one-size-fits-all, well, your brother did it. Uh, no, see, everyone's individual, and so our standards have got to be individualized. This is the art of parenting. And I encourage you, never, never, never compare. Well, your brother did it, why can't you? It is, I think, one of the worst things that a parent can do. I remember, and I've shared this before, but the time I got embittered, towards my parents, and it sent me down a, a trajectory for four or five years that was just not healthy. But I was 12 years old. I was a drummer in a, a band of older kids. I was 12, but I was good for my age, and they were like 15 and 16, and so they wanted me to be their drummer. And the way that these older kids uh, got money to buy good equipment was they became experts at stealing records. This is the uh, late 60s, early 70s, those 12-inch you know, platinum records. Um, or plastic records, whatever they're made out of. And, and uh, they would steal them, and they had a whole organized crime network. It was incredible, a whole distribution chain. Uh, and they made a lot of money and had some really good equipment. So I come into this band, and I've got this really sucky set of drums that are just cheesy and dumb. So they say, hey, listen, if we're going to be playing at high schools, you've got to have better drums than that. So I have to get some money 
to get better drums, so they teach me the trade. And one of the best ways they figured out to steal records is you, you get this coat and you redesign the inner lining so that you can easily slip in these 12-inch records uh, in, 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 the, in the coat thing, and no one can notice it because it's a nice long coat. Brilliant, right? And they taught me how to you know, swiftly do that and whatever. Well, the first time I try this, uh, I'm wearing my long coat. Unfortunately, it's mid-July, a hot day. <laughs> and I hitchhike with my long coat, hitchhike down to Dayton's down here in St. Paul. I used to be down here. And I'm working the record section. I'm, I'm nervous, so I'm sweating anyways. Plus, it's hot, so I'm sweating bullets. I, I'm so stupid. I, must have, I couldn't have looked more suspicious. I'm so sweaty. <laughs> no one's going to catch me. I tell you. So on my way out of the store, of course, the undercover, uh, undercover cop pulls me aside and says, you want to show me a receipt for those 32 records you have in your coat? <laughs> so he takes me down to the police station, and it was just terrifying. And I'll never, on the road, the eternal ride home from the police station. I'm in the back seat. My mom and, or my, my dad and my stepmom are in the front. And dad primarily was railing at me. And I know he was mad and said things that he probably wished he hadn't said. But one of the things he said, and this is what broke me, was he held up the certificate of arrest that they gave him. He says, oh, what should we do with a certificate of arrest? Hmm, so impressive looking, isn't it? Let's frame it. Yeah, let's frame it. And let's put it on the wall. Well, let's put it on the wall in the living room right next to Chris's trophies. And see, so my brother was, was a sports star. He was best at everything he did, hockey, football, baseball. So he had all these trophies. We called it the family trophy wall, but you know, most of it was Chris's. I had one trophy. He had about 25. I think my sister had two. Uh, and we had a little, a few little ribbons. But I already was so discouraged by that. I, I wasn't measuring up. And sports for my dad was like the really important. That was what counted. Drumming didn't count for anything. Sports is what counted. And so, so uh, I, I was already a disappointment. And then when he said this, I, in the back seat of that car, I, I gave up. I surrendered. I quit. Um, I remember exactly what I was thinking. I can't share it with you here. But um, it was basically, basically, if I can't be good at being good, I will be very good at being bad. And I was already kind of moving in that direction anyways. But th- this is what broke it. And within a week or two, I had up to this point been saying no to the older kids who were trying to get me to smoke pot. And uh, now I started saying yes. And I was saying no to the ones who were giving me, uh, wanted me to take LSD. Uh, and then I started saying yes. And that sent me down a road for four years of drugs and all sorts of craziness that could have been avoided. But see, when, you, when a person gets embittered, if I'm not going to feel worthwhile this way, because I can't, your expectations are too high, I'll feel worthwhile this way. And now at least I'm accepted by my peers. I'm a rebel. I'm a renegade. And I got life from that. Parents, don't embitter your children Parent the way God parents. and everything we do, we're supposed to honor God by reflecting His character. God has an ideal, but when we fall short of it, He doesn't just damn us for it. He comes down and enters into solidarity with us. And so, you have your ideal, and when the child fails to meet it, maybe there's negative consequences that need to be experienced because we don't want to be raising slackers. Okay, So, it's not saying there's no room for discipline, but we've got to balance mercy with justice the way God does. And we do that by entering into solidarity with them. Um, Come down to where they're at in the midst of their failure. The only thing that's worse than feeling like a hopeless failure is feeling like a hopeless failure who's alone. And God never leaves us alone in our failings, so we should never leave our kids alone in our failings. Never be up here and they're down there. If they're down there, you get down there with them. 
And get on your knees and say, you know, what can I do to help you not flunk math class for the fourth time? Well, what can I do? And don't do it sarcastically, but honestly saying, let's together work as a team. Parents work as a team. Come up with solutions. And sometimes you got to let go of the standard altogether and be happy with whatever inch-by-inch progress you're making. Sometimes just not going in the wrong direction is a big achievement. You know, adjust the standards. Adjust the standards. And just... And just because one child could do it easily doesn't mean the other child can never compare. Every, every child is, a, is an end in and of themselves. And you have to adjust the standards accordingly. And most importantly is, is they need to feel worth from you. Whatever they do, however successful they are, however they fail, your job is to communicate, reflect their worth before God. So affirm whatever you can affirm. Look for things to affirm. And I know, I'm a parent. Sometimes you gotta look really hard. But look, there's things to affirm. Thank you for getting out of bed this morning. Whatever, you did a great job. You picked up one of the 12 toys you left. Whatever it is, affirm whatever you can affirm. Think of it like this. Treat an affirmation as a penny you put into a bank. And treat a rebuke or discipline as a quarter you take out of that same bank. And make sure that that bank is never empty. Because if that bank ever gets empty, your child is going to start looking for pennies and quarters elsewhere. You see? And now you're going, now you're in trouble. You're embittering them. So always have a nice stash of, of, of money there that you can draw out from. And, and, uh, that way the worth is being communicated to your child, however successful or failing they may be at any particular time. Okay. That's parenting God's style. And we do that out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul says, slaves, obey your masters in everything. And do it not only when their eyes are on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. There's that new motivation, reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an, uh, an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is Christ you are serving. So here's something. Sl- slavery in the first century was not quite like slavery in the pre-abolition South in America. Uh, in the first century, most slaves were more like indentured servants. They did receive a minimum wage. It was very minimum, but they did receive a minimum wage. And over time, they could, in principle, buy their way out of slavery. At least there's an element of hope there, you see. Uh, there's a, a little bit of a humanizing element. That wasn't the case in the pre-abolition South, where they were paid nothing and had no hope of ever getting out of it. Uh, so th- there's a little difference between the two. Still, in the first century, this was dehumanizing service. As long as you were a, a slave, doulos in Greek, uh, some translated as servant, but I don't think that captures the gravity of the nastiness of their situation. These folks had no rights, could be bought and sold, just like women could, uh, in the same category. And so Paul is speaking to them. Now, thankfully, as I said before, everyone accepts that that's part of the cultural accommodation of the Bible. Why they don't yet see that with wives, I don't know, but at least they accept that with regard to slaves, that's cultural adaptation. But that doesn't mean that the passage has no application to us. It has a great deal of application. Because we could apply it to anybody who's in service for another. This principle he's giving here applies to employees who have to work for employers. And what Paul is saying here is that as you're an employee, do it not just to serve a human master, to do the job, to get the pay. Do it unto the Lord. Do it as, not just when they're looking to get the pay raise, but do it with sincerity of heart to please your Lord because in being a good worker, you will receive a reward in heaven. Think about that. You worry about your pension. Well, you got a great pension being stored up if you're doing your, your job rightly. That's so significant because we so often get too spiritual on stuff. 
And we think that there's, there's like spiritual times and non-spiritual times. And work is just one of the mundane things that I gotta do because we gotta earn a living. Got my brother on the table. I hate the job, but I'll put up with it and then I'll die. Uh, no, you see, here's what Paul's saying. When, when, when we submit to another, not because they have any real authority over us, because that whole fallen world's done away with, when we submit to an authority because our Lord tells us to, then we're submitting to Christ. And we're expressing the worth that Christ has to us by submitting in this area. So this is an act of worship that we're in, involved in. And so as we do our jobs diligently as unto the Lord, we are worshiping Christ. You're involved in a worship service. I don't care if you're working as a sewage cleaner. I don't care if you're a computer fixer-upper or a car mechanic or a CEO of a company or a waitress or a, a child care worker. You're worshiping Christ if you're doing it passionately with all your heart in service to Him, you see? And not only are you getting paid in this world for it, but you will get paid in the next, Paul says. There's a reward that, that is for you. And so what Paul is in essence doing is he's saying, tear down the wall between the secular and the unsecular, the kingdom and the non-kingdom, the religious and the non-religious. No, uh, it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. And so whatever you do, invite the king into it. There is no kingdom place and there is no kingdom activity. Or there is no activity or place that isn't a kingdom activity and a kingdom place if you're inviting the king into it. In other words, the only time that there's, the kingdom isn't there is when you're not inviting the king into it. But when you invite the king into it and you do it in service to the king, now you are worshiping God, cleaning sewage pipes as much as when you're here singing songs, if you're doing it unto the Lord. Our life becomes one big worship of God, and it takes on meaning and significance. We see a very interesting mix here of the, uh, uh, the ideal and the accommodation in this passage and in the surrounding context. Um, a few verses before this, just follow this here. Paul says this, and in fact, we dealt with these verses about nine months ago. <laughs> there are eight verses ago, nine months ago. That's how fast we go here. But he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of, of the Creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all and is in all. Here we're seeing God's ideal being expressed. Because Paul is saying that to put off that fallen self that um, is part of this fallen world that has passed away. He says in 2 Corinthians 5 that in Christ all things are made new. Behold, all things are new. This fallen world, that fallen self that's part of this fallen world that ranks people according to socioeconomic status, that ranks people according to gender, that ranks people according to race or nationality. All that has passed away. That self that's defined by what people think about you and what social status you have. That fallen world that's always trying to get power over others. All that is gone, Paul is saying. And that if you know what the true image of God is and are being renewed in that, you know who you are in Christ, well, then you know that it's Christ who defines you and Christ who defines everything else. Uh, the social distinctions mean nothing to you anymore. The gender distinctions, those don't matter anymore. The world infuses a lot of significance in that. But we as kingdom people don't. It's all passed away. And so this is God's ideal where we, we realize Christ is all and is in all and defines everything. And so we relate to one another as we are in Christ. And see, if people are relating to each other as they are in Christ, treating each other as they would treat Christ, you're not going to have anyone being put in dehumanizing service of others. Okay? Uh, it just wouldn't happen. No, that you, you'd create an equal, a completely equal community where people have different gifts, but everyone's worth is acknowledged as they are in Christ. So that's God's ideal. But now when it comes to applying this, in the passages that we read this morning, the Spirit leads Paul to back off a little bit and to 
accept the social structure, the fallen social structure of the master-slave. Presumably because the Colossians weren't ready for it yet. All right? But notice this. He puts, he plants in place a principle that if it's worked out, will eventually get rid of slavery. The principle is whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. And the teaching is that here's what the ideal looks like. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, neither Scythian nor Jew. All that distinction is done away with. So here's the truth of God's ideal. Here's your motivation for living. If you hold on to that truth and do that motivation, well, you're eventually going to create a culture where there is no master-slave relationship anymore. But see, it takes time. And God's a missionary. And so he, he plants the seed, and the mustard seed grows. And our job is always to manifest as much of the ideal as we possibly can. And we do that by saying we do away with all the distinction between the holy and the unholy, the sacred and the profane. Everything we do, we do as an act of worship to God, out of reverence to God. And we turn the most mundane task into holy task. We turn the most menial task into worshiping task. Uh, it's a worship of God. And now there's nothing that's meaningless. In fact, folks, if you try this at your workplaces, see how it changes your attitude. Uh, you, you'll find that it's t- time passes much quicker when you're doing these menial tasks because they're no longer menial. Uh, you'll find that you can let go of grudges really easily because you're no longer wasting your life trying to work for this incompetent boss. No, you're working for Jesus Christ, and so there's nothing meaningless, and you're going to get paid for it. You know, so it, it's it's uh, you can let go of those grudges, and you'll find that whenever you invite the king in on on your 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 life, whether it's at workplace or anywhere else. There is that kingdom peace and that kingdom joy and that kingdom love that just begins to saturate your being. I encourage you, uh, make, make your, your, whatever your job is, make it church. Because you're worshiping God there as much as you're worshiping God here or anywhere else if you're doing it unto the Lord. And the final thing I'll say is this. He says, Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. We no longer have master-slave relationships, thank, thankfully. But we got bosses. And bosses have employees. And this would apply to anybody who's in a position of boss. Whoever has, for whatever reasons, the world's given you uh, an advantage of being over others. You have your own company or however you got it. There are people work for you. And so this passage would apply to you. And what Paul is saying is simply this. Uh, never forget that you've got a heavenly boss. And so you want to be a boss the way your, he- your father in heaven is boss. Reflect his character. He'll in the end judge the world according to what is fair and right. So you always make sure that you are judging according to what is fair and right. Make the way that you are a boss, honor God. Do it out of reverence for, for Jesus Christ. Now the fact that he says, do what is fair and right, shows that Paul acknowledges that sometimes bosses have to do, make tough decisions. This is a justice thing he's giving. You know, sometimes you gotta crack down. That's what bosses have to do. Um, and, and the kingdom principle would be this. If you're a boss, you own a company or whatever it is, there's people under you, make sure that the way that you have to crack down, whether you discipline someone or have to fire them, it's consistent with your identity in Christ. In other words, you're not allowed to ever think of their worth as less than unsurpassable because that's what God, that's the only opinion God gives you to think about them. So however you treat employees, it, you have to reflect that they have unsurpassable worth. At the same time, because a person has unsurpassable worth doesn't mean that they do a job with unsurpassable worth. You can have unsurpassable worth and be absolutely worthless at a particular job. When I was in grad school, a friend of mine graciously, I, I, I took whatever job I could get that paid money, and a friend of mine uh, built these three-season porches that you attach to houses, and he asked me during a summer if I'd like to make a whole lot of money helping him build these porches. I said, sure. It took about a half hour for him to realize I was worthless at this job. <laughs> I, 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 I'm worthless when it comes to making exact measurements, and worthless when it comes to cutting exact lines, and worthless when it comes to putting the right screw in the, the right hole, and I'm worthless when it comes to even know the basics about what, what, what is a duct. What is a duct? One time he said, we, we hit a duct, 
And I said, we hit a duck? What's a duck doing in the... I know what a duct was. It's D-U-C-T, not D-U-C-K. Or I, I don't know what a diagonal pliers is or socket wrenches or whatever. He'd say, go get me this. And I was like, what is that? I can explain to you, you know, the forogenic phases of the actual occasion as it goes in the process of concrescence and receiving God's subjective aim and becomes objective idea and the consequent nature of God. No problem. But I don't know what a diagonal wrench is or pliers, whatever it is. I never taught, was taught that. So I've got unsurpassable worth, but I'm worthless when it comes to that job. And the boss's job is to tell me that. <laughs> and he did, and I understood. I understood. You know, so, now, see, sometimes you have to do that. You're not doing the job that you're supposed to be doing. But I encourage kingdom bosses that as you do that, always remember you're dealing with a person of unsurpassable worth, never just a position or a unit or a, a dollar sign. And so as much as possible, and I know it can get complex given the bureaucratic structures of companies, but help the person themselves realize that this isn't the job that they're, they're made for. If possible, help them to find out what their, 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 a job they would be good at. And as much as possible, enter into solidarity with them to make that transition as, as, uh, as, as smooth as possible. But you can't feel bad about the fact that sometimes you gotta fire people, cause that's what bosses gotta do sometimes. But you can do it in a way that expresses unsurpassable worth. So folks, so summary here, when you read the Bible, do it realizing that the God of the cross breathed that Bible. So you're going to find stuff where God, in the surface is ugly and barbaric. But what reveals God to you is not what's on the surface, but you know that God stepped into that. It's the condescension that is the revelation. And secondly, whether it's about wives submitting to husbands and husbands to wives, whether it's about children submitting to parents or about employees submitting to employers or employers submitting to God in the way that they are employers, Everything we do should be done with the motivation of serving God, reflecting His character to a world around us. Everything should be done as kingdom activity. There is no divisions, no lines. Uh, we don't give any significance to who's what, who's got what status, who's got what money, who's got what position, who's got what gender, who's got what nationality. It means nothing in the kingdom. And yet we live in a world that still plays that fallen game. And so as missionaries, we've got to play that fallen game. So we play it, recognizing that it means nothing. And we do it all with a motivation of honoring our Abba Father. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? Uh, I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, come on up here and receive prayer for that. Uh, they would love to minister to you. Uh, no reason for you to carry that burden out on your own. Abba Fathers, we leave this place. Uh, play the game of the world, positions and status and, and money and power. Uh, God, help us to remember that in you it's all insignificant. And yet... We have to, we're called to minister in this culture. And so God, uh, purify our hearts so that all that we do uh, is done for you. And that to realize there's no unholy task, there's no menial task, there's nothing meaningless if it's done for you. And that it has eternal significance. The cleaning a toilet has eternal significance that we will, the benefits of which we will reap if we're doing it passionately for you. Help us to remember that. Holy Spirit, seal it on our hearts in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and manifest the kingdom.